Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. We are continuing with our study in the Gospel of John. Jesus is now about to enter Jerusalem for the last time. This is the last week of Jesus' life on this uh, earth. And we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 9. And we're going to read from verse 9 through 19. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion! See, your king is coming! seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look. How the whole world has gone after him. Wow, what an amazing period of time in the life of Jesus Christ. As you see all the events of his life coming together for what really will be the most important week and event in the history of the world. Where Jesus will be crucified and will defeat death and will rise from the grave in three days. And so here you see uh, a number of people now being drawn to Jesus. Look at the power of Jesus. Look at the miracles of Jesus. And raising Lazarus from the dead was like the cherry on top of the cake. That did it. And now people by the hundreds and hundreds are being drawn to him. And so what you see is the hostility towards God by the religious elite has now reached a pinnacle. He's got to go. He's got to die. And not only does he have to go and he has to die, but Lazarus has to die. And one of the things that I want to tell you about is I want you to see what happens when you get mired in sin. This is what sin does. Because the chief priests, the religious elite, were now mired in sin. They had hardened their heart, determined that Jesus had to die. Well, now they're going to take an innocent man. Lazarus isn't doing anything other than rising from the dead. And he, he, was, he was the person who Jesus raised. But because of that, he has to die. You see how evil Satan is and how sin takes over your life? And this is a lesson to you. When you get caught, if you're found, if there's some part of your life that's not right with God, not right with God, you have to ask God to wash that out, to to cleanse you, because you see what happens. Sin is metastatic. It is metastatic. It spreads. It infects. And it draws you down. And you don't even realize what you're doing. And you see this uh, in every way. And so Lazarus has become the irresistible attraction. People are coming from all over to see this. Uh, And so what we see about Lazarus is teaching me several things in my life. 
Uh, and the thing is that Lazarus stood constantly by the side of Jesus. And as Lazarus stood by the side of Jesus, the Lord used him and the Lord gave him courage. Think about it. You had to have courage to stand up the way Lazarus was standing up. To be in a public posture the way Lazarus was standing up. Because he knew the death sentence was on Jesus. They had made it very clear. Bring Jesus in. We want to arrest him. We want to bring this to, a, to an end. Uh, and so what you see is when you bring Jesus into your life, he will lift you up. He will affirm you. He will give you courage. He will give you courage. Courage to speak out about him. Courage to be the kind of Christian that he wants you to be. Uh, and so this is a really, really uh, solid piece of evidence in terms of how God wants us to live. Uh, and, and one of the things that resonates with me as I study this, I see how the Sadducees, who were the chief priests, who were the political uh, uh, people, more so than the Pharisees, they were all on the Sanhedrin together, but the Sadducees were the chief priests. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They believed only in the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that when you died, that was it. Uh, and, and of course, the Pharisees uh, disagreed with them. The Pharisees understood they had a broader view of Scripture, uh, knew the prophetic books, knew that there was a resurrection. And so this was a sore point. And so really understanding how uh, fixated this, the Sadducees were on this issue about the resurrection, you can understand why Lazarus is a problem. This is a problem. This guy was dead, and now he's walking around. This is a big deal. Now, I want to give you, I want to show you a, a section of scripture that focuses on this. Turn to Luke chapter 20. And here you see their warped theology coming together. And this is the Sadducees. Luke 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Now, I love this question, you know. I love this question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? They had to stay up all night to concoct that one. I could see them around a campfire saying, how about, no, how about this? No, how about this? Yeah, he'll never be able to answer this, right? He'll never be able to answer this. This is where you see how evil, evil infiltrates your mind and heart. And I want you to see this. This is the religious elite. These are the people that are leading the religious effort in Israel. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
For to him all are alive. Amen? Amen. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. I mean, really. What, what a magnificent, what a magnificent gift to understand the, te- the teachings of God. That there is Moses speaking from the bush, uh, there, here, speaking to the bush and God saying to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not the God of dead people. I'm not the God of dead. I'm the God of alive. Uh, and you see this. And so this whole fixation about your brother's wife, and remarriage, and what's good, and how, and all to try to make fun of, really, to make fun of, of the theology. And Jesus put it down. Look, you, 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 if you have anybody that wants to know for sure whether there's life after this life, read them this passage because Jesus makes it very clear. We're going, we're going, we're going to be with Him. And all these issues that work on this earth, the issues of marriage and giving in marriage, when we get to the other side, those issues are, are going to be irrelevant. Because effectively, we're going to be married to Jesus Christ. All right? We will be married to the Lord. Uh, Certainly, you're going to know your wife. You're going to know your family. You're going to have those uh, relationships that you have here. But the prime relationship, the prime relationship will be with Jesus Christ and with God. And so you see Jesus is, is, is making this absolutely clear. And so now Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem for the last time. Effectively, we call it Palm Sunday. And it's interesting as you study this issue of the palms. How did the issue of the palms come about? Well, it came about because 200 years earlier, Syria, uh, a Syrian general, had conquered Jerusalem, taken over Jerusalem um, and and that part of Israel, and went in and had a a desolation of abomination in the temple in which uh, he, he, he did pagan sacrifices pagan sacrifices, drinking blood, uh, defacing the temple right there. And of course, Jesus will later speak about when the Antichrist comes back, there will be another abomination, another abomination in which the Antichrist will effectively do the same thing when he comes back. But here it is, the first time, it's 200 years before Christ walks into Jerusalem. And so what happens? The Maccabees, the Jewish zealots, stood up and revolted and threw off the yoke of Syria, threw them out of the country and took back Jerusalem and took back the country. And as they then came back triumphantly into Jerusalem after doing this, the people would say Hosanna and wave the palm branches. So that was the indication of the palm branches. What happened with Jesus was not the first time of the palm branches. Waving of the palm branches signified the taking back of the national identity of Jerusalem and Israel. Get that in your head. That's what they understood. They saw who Jesus was, and they believed, as Jesus' popularity is mounting now, they believed that Jesus was going to be the Messiah who would take back the country, who would throw off the yoke of Rome. They did not see this as a spiritual event. And one of the things that you recognize is you see what happens when you lose sight of the spiritual realities of God. Because you get so caught up in the temporal things, you lose sight of the greater realities. And one of the things, as I've studied this the last couple of years, and come to realize, how could the Jews not know Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem? 
How did they not read the prophecies of Daniel and know that a period of 480 or 90 years had come up and now something big was going to happen to Israel, the Messiah was going to come? How did they not read the, the uh, prophecies of Malachi or the prophecies of Zechariah? And what I have learned in my study is that the rabbis stopped teaching the prophetic books. This is what happens. You don't need to study the prophetic books. So that last 400 years of the life of Israel, really, they did not study the prophetic books. And so they were largely uneducated. They were largely unprepared for the Messiah to come back into Jerusalem. And that's why, really, they were lost. Which is why, here's Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Nobody real realizes and understands what it is until the king, Herod, says to the wise men, Come in. Where do you think he's going to be born? Well, they knew. They went back and studied it. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. You understand? But the people were not ready. They had not been prepared by the religious leaders. And so you see this whole picture. Uh, and, and so you see it. And Jesus is brokenhearted. He's brokenhearted because he knows the very reason that he has come back is to save this country. To elevate the Jewish people. To recognize they need a savior. Not a nationalistic deliverer. He wasn't interested in the nationalism of the country. He had said before, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Give unto God that which is God. He's interested in your soul, in your salvation. You are lost in your sin. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And so he's doing everything, even in this last trip in, to let them understand exactly what's going on uh, and, and, and why they so desperately need a Savior. There's a very good passage in Scripture that speaks about this last uh, trip into Jerusalem. Turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Uh, and I think this passage into Jerusalem, factually, is a little bit broader here in Luke. And I want to read it with you. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If any anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Now, th this is an amazing passage. The Lord needs it. First of all, I, I, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who has a colt, and now two guys come to your house and said, I, I want to take the colt because uh, Jesus needs it. When I read that, I said to myself years ago, this doesn't resonate with me because, uh, you know, these people are poor. Two guys come and they're going to take, take a, a, a colt and they're going to walk away with it? Well, what I've realized after I've studied this is that Jesus' fame was so pervasive at this moment in time, there's several million people in, in Jerusalem, Jesus is now being recognized as this great personage, the one who will throw off the yoke of Rome. So when the disciples come there and says, the Lord needs it, take it. Yeah. You understand? Makes sense now, does it? Take it. Oh, for Jesus? Yes. Who's going to take over the country, bring it back? Take it. Now, this comes directly out of prophecy. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. And this is why when we teach, 
we use the Old Testament to prove the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. Now this is a prophecy that is being written about 400 to 500 years before Christ would be born. And so you understand that, that the last book of the Bible, Malachi, was written about 400 years before Jesus is born. The Zechariah is contemporaneously about that period also. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, four to five hundred years before. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, let me stop right up there and tell you why this is important. What it is, it's a prophetic uh, message to Israel that your Savior is going to come in a way that will not be warlike. Do you see this? He will come gentle and riding on a donkey. Anytime a king would come in, process uh, as a king, a king in his demonstration of his power and might would come in riding on a horse. No king would ride in on a donkey. You understand? It was immediately God is demonstrating that this is not the typical uh, king of the world demonstrating his warlike powers. Rather, it's the king of the universe demonstrating the essence of who he is, which is peace and love and demonstrating that uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and showing them that this is how he's going to come in. And so here it is. He's going to ride on a foal that had never been written, written on before. And then in verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's who Jesus is. Now, you understand that they did not understand this prophecy. They were not prepared for this prophecy. And it was only afterwards, after the disciples saw Jesus die and expire, that, that they understood, oh, this is what Jesus was doing. This is what Jesus meant. This is why he sent us to get that colt. He was doing, he was fulfilling the scriptures, even as he sent us that day. And we did not know it. And I'm going to tell you something, which the analog for you today in your life is God is doing things, preparing you in your life for future service that you do not know. You have no idea what's going on in your life right now. The events of your life, even things that may be suffering, persecution, hard times, but God is preparing you for greater events, for greater service. I'm convinced of it uh, because I see it in the life of the, of the uh, apostles. Uh, and then, as, as uh, Jesus is walking into the town, walking in, they are crying out, Hosanna. Uh, and they're speaking about uh, who Jesus is. And uh, one of the th uh, words that they're using comes directly from Psalm 118. Turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And this is what's going on. Hosanna, Hosanna, 
Blessed is the name of the Lord who comes in the name of God. And they're waving the palm branches and they're doing this. And the uh, Pharisees lose their mind. They lose their mind. This has got to be stopped. Jesus, stop your people. Stop them from saying this. Stop them from saying this. Uh, because they knew what it was. They understood what this meant. The people were articulating the, the prophecies uh, about the Messiah. Even if they didn't understand what, it was, what, what they were saying. But the religious elite understood. Uh, and they viewed it as blasphemy. And Jesus said, if I tell them to stop, the stones will cry out. Meaning that's how significant this event is in the life of the church and in the life of this world. Um, and so you see it here, going back again to Luke chapter 19. Uh, and so uh, I left off there in verse 37, uh, actually verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, there it is. Right out of the Psalms. There it is. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Um, and so some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, who is Jesus speaking to at this point? He is speaking to institutional Judaism. He is speaking to Israel as a nation. He is not speaking to individual Jews. Let's get that clear. He is not saying to individual Jews, it's too late, you can't come forward. That would never happen. God would not do that. Uh, and, I, and I've studied this, and, and I really believe this is true. God would not cut off individual people. Time and time and time again, it's clear that God will give individual people time to make a decision, even when they're recalcitrant. But as to the country, as to the nation, this was a time of when God says, that's it. That's it. It's done. It's done. As to, as to institutional Judaism. Um, and I'll prove that to you by showing you that when God dealt with Pharaoh, you know that it says there that eventually God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But let's understand that. Right before that, there were multiple times, multiple efforts, in which God did not harden Pharaoh's heart, in which he gave Pharaoh every opportunity to repent, to stop his conduct, to change his ways, it's only after repeated, repeated violation against God, the refusal to repent, where then God puts the curtain down. And this is what's happened here. This is what's happened here. So the always, individual Jews always can still come to Christ. But as an institution, Judaism, 
coming to accept who Jesus Christ is, that's not going to happen now until the last days. And it will happen. It will happen. When Christ comes back, it will happen. We know that if we study, study uh, the prophecies of God, what they say about the last days. But let's understand what Jesus is saying here. Here he is. This is about the year 30 or so A.D. And Jesus is foretelling that, that there will be a tremendous carnage in Jerusalem. And he's already said that not one stone of the temple will be left on the other. Now, can you imagine making that, that statement when the, when the uh, temple was one of really the seven wonders of the world? People from all over the world would come because it was a giant f facility encased in gold. It gleamed in the sun in every way. And to say it's an enormous facility and to say not one stone would be left on, against the other. What are you saying? Are you lost your mind? That can't possibly happen. It's not in a, a day when we had atomic bombs. How could this happen? And yet Jesus saw it. And so what would happen? This is the year 30 or so. And what would happen about uh, 36 years later? The Jews will go into revolt against the Romans. They will take the city back. They will fortify themselves into the city through the walls. And there will be about four years of siege and fighting in which the Romans will ultimately kill about one million Jews. Can you imagine? One million Jews. Uh, and this will, this will be the, the General Titus, who was the son uh, of the emperor, and Vespasian. And this battle will take place for four years. And effectively what they did at the end is they just did a siege. They just shut the city down. They wouldn't allow people to go in or go out. And the carnage that went on was awful. Uh, and people are eating uh, human bodies in order to stay alive. It's awful. I've read books on this. And they said the blood in this city was like ankle deep. It was just, it's, I mean, you can imagine. It's not, it's not a big place. We're not talking about an enormous place. And yet, what happened? And the Roman soldiers, ultimately, they lost their mind because the Jews wouldn't give up. And so they basically set fire to the stones, actually set fire to the stones in a siege mentality until the stones cracked and crumbled, until the gold melted out of the stones in order to do that. And at the end of the day, not one stone was left on the other. Oh, dear Lord Jesus. What happens? What happens when we don't accept God? You see, God gives, he extends himself for years and years and years, 1,400 years, 1,400 years. And yet they were stiff-necked and refused to see it, even, even in the face of all these great miracles. And so what happens? What happens now is basically that the Jewish people are displaced. It's displaced. Uh, and they're sent throughout the world. And so now there'll be 2,000 years will go by until the Jewish people will again have a homeland. 1947, Israel will be established. But can you imagine 2,000 years of roaming as a people all over the world? Roaming. And you see it all being foretold and prophesied uh, by Jesus Christ uh, on this day. And so it's an amazing, an amazing passage. Take a look also at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will honor 
Galilee of the Gentiles. Underline that, folks. That's like saying he's going to honor a truck stop. All right? By way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness having have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. And so you understand this, that Jesus now entering, entering Jerusalem as the Messiah, the Savior of the Jewish people, the Savior of the entire world, needing people to repent, not interested in the nationalistic issue of the country, but interested in the long-term salvation of the country, uh, comes in. Uh, and here's the thing. Why did Jesus enter uh, Jerusalem in the way that he did on Palm Sunday? Well, he did it, first of all, to fulfill scripture. We already talked about that in Zechariah. He did that, but he had already told his disciples he was coming to Jerusalem to die. They didn't get it, but he told them that. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Imagine that. Jesus kind of just gives you a travel log. This is what's going to happen. We're going to go into Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. All right? We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. How do you like that? They knew it. They didn't accept it. They couldn't get it through their heads. They didn't understand it. Uh, and so you, you see this, that Jesus made it very clear that this is what was going to happen. Now, I spent a, a pretty considerable period of time writing there in the outline, trying to show you that there's some pretty good evidence that Jesus did not die on a Friday, but most likely died on a Thursday. Now, uh, I did it really just to demonstrate to you, and, 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 and I did it, and somebody said it's a little confusing, and maybe it is. But in that week, which they've done computer searches of, of dates, they've gone back to look at, at what most likely was the date that Jesus died. And most likely it was in the year 30, and it probably was on a, a Thursday, April 6th, uh, in the year uh, 30, to, uh, uh, 30, 30 years after Jesus would have been, uh, well, 30 years after the new century would have started. In the year 30, and the reason for that is that that was a unique week that there were two Sabbaths in that week. Uh, and every once in a while that happened, two Sabbaths. So there would have been a Sabbath immediately after the Passover. So the Passover would have been uh, on Wednesday. The, the, the Sabbath would have been on Thursday, uh, or uh, excuse me, the other way around. The uh, uh, Passover would have been on uh, Friday, the Sabbath, the Passover would have been on Thursday, there would have been a Sabbath on the Friday, and then another Sabbath on Saturday. Two Sabbaths back to back. You got that? Leaving Sunday as the first day that those women could come to the tomb with the spices that they bought and anoint the body of Jesus. They couldn't do it before that because there were two Sabbaths intervening. All right? This means that most likely Jesus was arrested on a Wednesday night. Uh, right after they had the, the meal in the upper room, he was arrested and tried all night on Wednesday night 
and into Thursday morning and most likely was executed in the afternoon of Thursday. Why is this important? Well, it's not important for any other reason other than you understand uh, some of the prophecies that Jesus made about himself. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. And this is the only reason I do this. Matthew chapter 12. Because whatever Jesus said, you could take it to the bank. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Verse 39, we'll start here. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You got that? Three days and three nights. Now it is true that in Jewish tradition you could have part of a day that would be considered a day. But the only way you get three days in is if in fact Jesus was crucified on Thursday. You got that? That's how you get the three days. Other than that, you don't get the three days. If Jesus were crucified on a Friday, it doesn't compute to three days. And what does this tell me? It tells me that Jesus was crucified on a Thursday. It also tells me that Jesus is verifying the Old Testament. You remember that lady that sat next to me in the plane and said, come on, you don't really believe that Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days? Well, my better answer now would be, Jesus believed it. Okay? Jesus believed it. And what you see over and over and over again is Jesus verifying the accuracy of the Old Testament. He believed the Old Testament. He cited it routinely. He knew that it was true. So in fact, Jonah was in the belly of a fish. I don't know if it was a whale, but it was a large fish. He was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. Amen. Just like Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three full days and three nights. So what does that mean? It means Thursday. It means Friday. It means Saturday. And on Sunday, Jesus would rise from the dead. Most likely, most likely sometime between late Saturday night and early Sunday morning, Jesus would rise from the dead, pull out, push out that stone, and walk out of that tomb. It ties up. It's accurate by what the scripture says. This should give you heart. Everything that's in the Bible ties together. God doesn't expect you to take a leap in the dark. If he tells you, he proves it to you. And here's the proof of that. And in fact, this makes so much more sense when you understand this. And it even makes sense to that ridiculous excuse made by the soldiers that were guarding the tomb. Remember that? Turn to Matthew 28, verse 11. When the, while the women were on their way, that is to the tomb... Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. The guards at the tomb. You can imagine what that had to be like, telling them. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. There it is. 
They said that he came during the night. It was during the night. And so I submit to you that sometime late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, who knows whether it was midnight, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, that's when the events at the tomb took place. It ties in even to the way they're, they're putting their story together and explaining it. And so what this all means is you see the hand of God in every aspect of the life of the Lord. Right up to the last day, right up into the crucifixion as he paints the story, fulfilling the scriptures, telling you, yes, I have come to save mankind. What a great story we have. What a great God we have. What a great Lord we have. We are so blessed to have this. And you need to be able to go out and tell other people about it. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this lesson. I thank you for your words. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the chance to have salvation, that you saved each and every one of us from a horrible life and given us eternal life. Thank you for this. Protect our people, especially those who will be traveling this week and the weeks to come. Be with them and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.